this whole notion of like teaching them how to question things. It's, it's so important because that's how they are going to continue learning on their own. That's when they're not going to believe everything that the doctor said or that, you know, like you're probably going to be alarmed by this or you probably already know, but like, it's incredible that we're still, you know, teaching the food pyramid. It's like, <laughs> what? Like, how are we like this? Like, how are we still teaching this? And kids are like blindly trusting it because it's in the textbook. And then, you know, half of the American population is obese. What is up, my friend, and welcome to The Dan Go Show. I'm your host, Dan Go, coach to high-performing entrepreneurs and professionals. And what we do at The Dan Go Show is tease out the best practices of the highest-performing entrepreneurs in the world while sharing cutting-edge, evidence-based information to help you become healthier and wealthier. So if that's what you're into, you're in the right place. Click that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts so every time one of my episodes goes live, you'll be the first to know. Hey, what's up? In today's podcast, I have what I consider to be the blueprint for creating a genius child. And uh, today I am interviewing Anna Lorena Fabregas, and she is uh, one of the uh, advisors for Synthesis, which is a school that Elon Musk uh, has started. Uh, she had been a teacher for a significant uh, portion of time for about like a decade, like just teaching in uh, New York, Panama, Boston. And, uh, and she is reinventing the way that education is currently being handled. And uh, one of the things that I say about this, like, because I was very biased when I was going into this interview, uh, I was very biased because I have two kids. Uh, I, I really want to learn. I really want to know the alternative ways that I can help them learn and also help them go through school because school was just like a, a horrible ordeal, ordeal for me. So I was very biased in that sense. But I do believe that every single adult should be watching this video, not only for their kids, but also for themselves, because this is a relearning of how we were actually meant to learn in the first place. And a lot of the tips, the tricks, and also the nuance that she brings into this conversation, it will benefit your life in one way or another. So I'm very confident in saying that she also has a book that's coming out called The Learning Game. And uh, and again, like we, we ended off the podcast and I was saying to her, it's like, uh, you know, usually parents want to read this for their kids, but adults should be reading this book because it is literally teaching them how to learn. So without further ado, I want to bring this amazing podcast that I did. It is with Anna Lorena Fabregas, and I hope you enjoy it. Hey, what's up? Uh, welcome to the podcast. We have here uh, Anna Lorena Fabrega, and I've been following you for quite some time. We've been following each other on Twitter. And one of the biggest reasons why I follow you is because of your perception and also the views that you have on education itself. Uh, it's refreshing for someone like me, especially someone who went through traditional schooling, didn't necessarily come out the, the other way, very enthused about it. And, and I'm glad there's someone like yourself that is uh, really pushing the forefront of alternative schooling and also just different ideas in which we can raise our kids and you know teach them and get them interested in learning in the first place. So, And I just want to say thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. 
Yes. So my very first question is, uh, is what does David Perel mean to you? Oh, I, I love that question. Um, it's funny because um, I met David l- later in life, right? Not that I'm that old, but um, but when I when I had left teaching, and we can talk a little bit about that later, I was kind of it was a profession I loved, um, but I was I grew discontent from a lot of the things that I saw within the system that did not let me do the things that I felt were right for the kids and for the kind of future that they're going to face, and and so I had all these ideas about my own experience um, as as a student from many different schools and then as a teacher in many schools. Um, but, but, and I had all these questions and all these thoughts that I wanted to put out into the world, but I never considered myself a writer. Um, I, I did not even like the act of writing, which is so ironic, mm-hmm. right? Looking, you know, fast forward three years and I, I ended up publishing a book, but, um, I just, I didn't really know what to do, but I knew that, um, I, I needed to learn how to write for modern times. And so he came across my Twitter um, profile uh, back when I had like 20 followers probably. And he was talking about how teachers would eventually become millionaires um, if they're able to sort of um, grasp online learning properly and how they could impact so many different kids and parents around the world. And so that caught my attention. And I went down a rabbit hole and I, you know, who's this self-proclaimed writing guy, right? That's what he used to call himself. So I realized that he was teaching this writing course and I enrolled with little expectations, right? Um, And quickly after maybe one or two sessions, I was blown away with the magic of online learning done right. Um, I had all these misconceptions about the online learning world. And so um, we hit it off pretty quickly because we're very similar in the sense that we both have this like zest for life. We love learning about everything and explaining things and and talking and interacting. And we both had sort of um, similar experiences with learning growing up. Um, And and that kind of changed as we grew up. And we were able to maintain this um, kid-like attitude towards the world. And so um, we, we hit it up pretty quickly. And then he really taught me through this course how to put my thoughts into writing in a coherent way, in a way that was meaningful, and how to distribute this writing, how to connect with people that were like-minded, and and sort of advance my mission to um, restore childhood education and transform childhood education through writing. And so, um, I um, when people ask me nowadays, you know, I, I was a teacher, I was an educator, and they're like, well, who who has been the teacher that has impacted you the most? And it's been David. David has now become a really dear friend to me, and um, I think that he he's my favorite teacher because. He helped me unlearn a lot of the things that, that I had learned in school that were holding me back um, and relearn um, the, the, the things that actually are applicable nowadays and, and opened my eyes to the power of the online world. And so he's someone that I admire a lot and um, that has influenced you know, everything that I do nowadays. So what is it about David that made him such a great teacher? And this brings me back to something that you previously said, which is like the great teachers were never teachers in the first place. So so what was it about David's course or the way that he taught that, that really unlocked learning for you? I think it was um, the belief in that everyone is able to write and that we all have this, what he calls um, your personal monopoly, this unique combination of things that make you who you are and that we all have something to share and add to the world if we're able to sort of hone down this practice. And so that belief, you know, really motivated me to keep going. Um, And I guess also the fact that um, 
he he doesn't preach or he doesn't like teach you straight up like this is what you need to do we need to focus on the rules and the mechanics which is usually what schools do right they make you focus on the things that don't you know don't matter as much he was like no it's all about the ideas right and and we need to really get to the place where you can express those ideas and and he and he opened it up for you to find whatever worked, you know, whatever way worked for you. It's not like this one size, you need to sit in front of a computer, open that blank document, start, you know, putting out content. He had like all these new ways of approaching ideas and, and writing that just blew my mind. And I think that um, a, a great teacher does that, right? They, they provide you with sort of like the tools and the resources and the people that would help you um, sort of craft, you know, or, or get to your craft, right? And really get really good at your craft. And then that support and then believe in you that he always believed that I was able to achieve all these things that I was like, no, you're crazy. And then he ended up being right about many of the things. So I think having somebody believing you that way is super important as, as part of the learning process. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it reminds me of just having a good coach. I feel like teachers or the best teachers are really just good coaches. Mm-hmm. And coaches are not necessarily ones that, that tell you, like, this is the way to do things or this is the way that you need to do things. Uh, especially from my aspect, I feel like um, one of the things I do is, is coaching. But one of the things that we do in coaching is just we adjust the style mm-hmm. towards the person that we're coaching. Yeah rather than just like force feed them like whatever system that we feel is working for everybody. It's like we literally coaching is like micro adjustments mm-hmm. towards like the best way that this person can learn and apply the things into their lives in a way that fits their lifestyles. And the one of the things that comes out to me as well is, is like David had a massive belief in you. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, you know, especially from like a, a teacher, someone that you look up to, it's huge like for them to actually believe that you have the potential to achieve what you think is impossible Mm -hmm. so so kudos to dave man Mm -hmm. kudos to dave for um yeah he didn't even he wasn't even teacher in the first place that's that's amazing too yeah 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 so one of the things that uh i learned about you is the fact that you actually have a buffet of schooling experience (laughs) that's a good way to put it Uh, so you've been to like 10 different schools in seven different countries like what exactly was that like in the first place yeah so i'm originally from panama but because of my dad's job we moved around a lot and so every two or so years we were packing our bags again, moving to a new country, um, sometimes in different continents. Sometimes I didn't speak the language. So I was always the new girl, right? Um, I always Mm -hmm. had to figure out um, how to adapt to my surroundings, how to pick up, you know, sometimes I would join schools in the middle of the year. Sometimes um, I would have to skip grades. Sometimes I would have to repeat grades. So it was always like I was playing catch up. (laughs) And so I guess that I learned from a very young age, something that the, the, the system kind of teaches you, but I became really good at this. Um, I learned how to how to fit in, right? And that was sort of like my 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 instinct in order to try to make friends and and try to get people to like me and try to, you know, kind of camouflage through what was going on and try mm. to survive. And so that was one of the things that I that I grew up thinking that I had to do for a very long time that I then had to like sort of unlearn and and we'll get to that. But basically mm. um I think it, you know, it made me obviously very flexible. Um, I knew that sort of everything had an expiration date, which I'm not sure if it's good or bad yet, but it's just sort of like what it was. Like in my mind, every time I would meet someone, I knew that eventually I was going to have to say goodbye. Um, and so so I, I guess I learned never to get too attached to things. Um, but at the mm-hmm. same time, I was always very personable. I loved making friends. And so 
But one of the things that really stands out, and I think it was sort of like a springboard to what I do nowadays is, you know, I have to adjust to, you know, many academic expectations, right? So these were different countries. And, and, and even though, again, you know, all across the, the world, and there were different kinds of schools in terms of like some were non-denominational, like non-denominational schools, some were religious schools, some were American schools, some were local schools. Um, public, private, but they all were pretty much the same. Um, and so I learned what I talk about in my book. I learned to play the, the game of school. And the game of school is pretty easy to master, right? It's all the things that you need to do in order to check the boxes, um, appear as if you're learning, um, you know, do the things that you know your teacher is going to be pleased with. Um, you know, you kind of learned what questions to ask and what questions not to ask because they get you in trouble, um, how to sit up properly and raise your hand to get that participation grade, like all of this things that you you pick up in school that looked the same regardless of the country, the place where I was, the grade. And so um, so I became really good at this game, but I wasn't necessarily enjoying the game, right? This is what I had to do in order to sort of navigate this flawed system and then get to the things that really excited me and where I argue that real genuine learning was happening. And these were the things outside of school, right? Um, when I was exploring my curiosities and, and digging into the things that I really wanted to learn about and exploring and sort of like break things and putting them back together. And I commend my mom because she was a very big part of this whole um, thing. I she, She's what I call the perfect enabler. And I talk about this a lot, how whenever we had a serious and productive interest, my sister and I, um, she would do anything to sort of facilitate that, right? And and not school related. Just anytime she would see us excited about something, she was like, yes, let's, let's do it. What do you need? What are the resources? Going back to sort of like David um, and the things that he would do, my mom did pretty much the same all throughout my, my childhood. And she made everything seem like an adventure, right? Because some people may hear this and say, oh my God, it must have been really hard, you know, leaving your friends behind all the time and moving so much and sort of like being lost all the time. But but for some reason, when I look back, everything was fun because my mom sort of painted it that way. Everything was an adventure. She would never complain about having to pack the house a hundred times and unpack and everything was fun. And so I think that that really um, speaks a lot to how parents' attitudes really pass on to, to, to your kids, right? And sort of like the, the, the way things are at home and so I adopted that attitude. And from a very young age, I loved to learn about new things and explain them in ways that captured people's attention. And so um, as I grew up, I decided, you know, I, I would love to work with kids. I would love to become an educator. And really, I, I, I noticed really early on that we have so much to learn from kids, sometimes even more than we have to teach them. And so I was very passionate about this. I was like, this is an opportunity to keep learning and then teach what I'm learning and then learn from them. And so I decided to become an educator and I studied childhood education in special education and psychology at NYU. And when I was doing my student teaching program, I had to observe um, lots of different kids in different placements, different schools, different grades for 200 hours as part of the program. And that's when I started to realize, oh, my God, these kids are playing the game of school, right? Um, they all, you know, they're bored. They're not necessarily interested in what's going on. They're learning to pass the test. After the test, they have no idea how to apply the knowledge or they forget. You know, they're playing inside their desk. They're daydreaming. They're kind of trying to get all the school learning out of the way to get to the things that they actually want to do as kids. And I was like, oh, my God, like I recognized the game. I just hadn't realized that it was universal, right? And so I kind of got discouraged because I would see it across grade levels, across schools, and I was like, wow, we're 
kids are stuck in these places for so many years and so many hours. And, and, and it's the most precious time of their lives, right? Their childhood years. And it doesn't seem like they're enjoying things that come naturally to humans, right? We're hardwired to learn and we're curious and we ask questions and we do all these things because we're trying to think for ourselves, right? And then we're put into these institutions where we kind of get trained out of all that, right? And suddenly the things that came naturally to us are forced and we, we have no choices over the learning or the way things are presented. And so no wonder kids start to lose that awe for life and that desire to learn about everything and that desire to take risks, right? And, and to approach failure with curiosity and, and all these things, right? That I would argue that we need in order to be happy and productive and successful adults in the kind of world that we live in. And so I became discouraged, but I was like, I'm going to try to do things differently in my classroom. So I taught for a few years and I believe that I did things differently, right? I would try to deviate from the curriculum as much as I could. Um, I would try to focus more on the things that the kids were already curious about and that they wanted to learn. I would try to provide explanations for everything that we were learning so that they could see why they're going to need this knowledge. That wasn't always easy, right? Because so many things lack you know, explanations or practical applications from the curriculums, which is so frustrating. And so, but I noticed that as they would move on to different grades, again, all these things that they would enjoy in my classroom, it would start to die down. And it seemed like a common trend, even for those that went to great teachers afterwards. And so that's when, you know, I realized where we're stuck in the education system, right? We Kids are stuck imitating their teachers instead of, you know, learning how to think for themselves. They're stuck following instructions and sort of like learning how to memorize textbook problems instead of learning how to solve real problems and how to figure things out for themselves. We keep remediating their weaknesses, right, that many times are self-fabricated, right? We are making these things up, the labels and this and the expectations and all these myths, and we're making them believe that they're not good at things that maybe they were just not ready to learn about, right? Or they were just not interested because they don't see the relevance. And so instead of doubling down on the things that they're really good at and finding their strengths. And so um, I, I just became really discouraged and I realized that it's very hard for any individual to make things move in a different way within the system, just because it's been there for so many years. There's so many different stakeholders and, and structures and parameters and standards that it's very hard to reform the existing system. And so I made the decision back in 2000, I think it was 19, to leave the school system and um, look for alternatives outside the system. And that's when I discovered sort of this alternative education world and all these amazing people that are working very hard every day to create sort of um, a replacement or alternatives or a parallel um, system, right? Um, that, that better matches the way that kids learn, what we know about kids, what excites them, and that creates lifelong learners, which I think should be the whole point of education. And so um, I guess that's a long story to sort of share, you know, where I came from and sort of how this inspired me to do the kind of work that I do now. Um, and yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of, <clears throat> of kind of like my foray into traditional school. And I always like to say that I fell in love with learning after I left school. And the more I learned about school was also that it was created for a very specific time and age that isn't there anymore. Mm -hmm. It was there to create, well, this is from my perspective. Mm -hmm. It was there to create workers. It was there to create people who would sit or do something for about eight hours mindlessly and just just kind of like not really question it. And you, you said something really interesting was a, was a sense of like, you explain everything to your students, but no one ever explains to them why they're actually going to school or actually has a really good explanation for it. Um, and, and yeah, like unfortunately, like school didn't necessarily work for me, but 
again, taking my education into my own hands and really just like diving into the things that I was interested in, that that created pretty much the reason why we're like here mm -hmm. right now in front of each other on this interview. So one of the things actually that uh, that I wanted to ask um, that I was just curious about was like, where did, where did the whole name of like, well, it's like it was Miss Fab. I'm guessing it's like Mrs. Fab now. So so where did that come from in the first place? I, I established a really, really deep relationship with all my students um, to the point that in one of the years um, I taught third grade and the third grade class got together with the parents and they were like, we really want for Miss Fab to move to fourth grade with us. And my school had <laughs> never done that. Right. It's called looping. Um, but the parents insisted and the kids insisted to the point that the principal was like, well, you have a choice. You can actually move on to fourth grade with them. And I did. And, I, and it was such a wonderful opportunity because we got to like sort of instead of start from zero, just kind of go from, you know, I had a whole year. I knew this kids inside out like I. Um, they, they were family to me. And so that kind of goes to speak um, to the point that, you know, I, I believe that relationships are the cornerstone of teaching and learning. And so um, my kids, you know, they, they, I mean, just another example, 19 of them showed up at, at my wedding, surprise, at the <laughs> wedding ceremony from different grades, like past students that I had. And, and it was incredible. And I think it's because, um, again, I, I really made a point to... Um, to, 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 I took them seriously, right? I, I did not talk to them like they were kids. I would make them part of decisions. Um, they knew that they all had sort of like a responsibility and a saying in the classroom that things were not just imposed to them. And, and it wasn't because I said so, but rather, you know, let's talk about this. There's a, there's a reason for everything. I was very open and honest about, you know, I, I don't have all the answers. I feel like this is something that... Um, that many teachers do that, that they feel like they need to have all the answers and many parents as well. But the reality is we don't, nobody has all the answers and it's totally fine saying, I don't know. In fact, it's an invitation to learn more. And so I think that I was very honest about that from the beginning and I would encourage them to teach me things. And I would tell them how I got into this profession because I wanted to learn from them and all these little things just really made them trust me and establish a connection. Um, and they came up with this nickname, Miss Fab that came from Miss Fabrega. And so it sort of became, um, yeah, like the nickname that I would have from my students but it's funny because they were the ones when when I was like trying to decide if I was leaving out they were like you need to start a YouTube channel you need to talk about all these things and I was like a YouTube channel like I don't I, I don't know anything about that and I still have a picture of the poster where they would um, I was like okay well what would the YouTube channel be and they would put post-its and tell me like the, the way I, I should do it and this and that and so anyway what I'm trying to say is I think the name came from um yeah, just from 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 the students that I worked with, and and sort of the kind of relationship that we had, um, and 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 yeah, and, and it sort of became my brand. Um, I think that I'm I'm an educator at heart, and I I will always be, even though I, I don't directly work with students nowadays, because I realize that I can have a bigger bigger impact when I share about these things with parents that then will impact their children, and so um, and so that's sort of like where it came from that nickname. Nice. And, uh, and I want to bring this back to a little viral tweet that you had uh, on, on X now. It's not even called tweets. Right. I think you're, you're Xing at this point. <laughs> and and uh, the tweet was this. It was like, I'm confused. You know, how do we conclude that the best way to prepare kids for the future is to cluster them into a setting where they are organized by age, into grades, forced to learn the same things at the same time and pace, seven hours a day, five days a week for 12 plus years, huh? And, and if you were to recreate the education system in a way that would be optimized for, for students actually loving to learn and, and leading themselves into things that they would want to even learn in the first place, 
How would you reimagine the education system? Yeah, so so this is an interesting question. I don't have a clear cut answer, but here's sort of where my thinking is. Um, that was one of the first questions that, that, that get me going, you know, to, and, and sort of digging and doing the research. Um, a lot of my work is questions, um, not that much mm-hmm. answers, and just kind of like hopefully to get you to reflect on, on your own learning experience and sort of why are we here? Why are we doing the things we're doing? But I think that um, the, the one of the reasons where, like wh- one of the ways that education went wrong was when we tried to standardize a process that cannot really be standardized. Why? Because as we know, we're all very different. We learn differently. We mature at different rates and paces. There's different ways that we absorb knowledge, that we convey knowledge. Our interests vary. And so when you try to put, you know, this natural process that, again, you can see it since babies are born, that it just comes very naturally and they're very good at it. Nobody has to teach them how to learn, right? They just do it as an instinct, right? When you try to grab this and inst- and put it into an institution and then put standards and put rules and, and organization, which of course there was a reason why we did it and it goes back to 200 years ago and we can talk about the history of education, but things have changed now. So when, when people ask me that question, I'm like, I, I, don't, I wouldn't put it into a system because I, I think that mm. the answer is diversity of approaches. And of course, logistics Logistically, is very complicated, but I think that we're onto something. We're not there yet, but in an ideal world, you know, if we're able to figure out because the the system works very much as a babysitting center. Parents, most parents need a place to drop off their kids, a place that's quote unquote safe. Of course, that has been changing in the past years, unfortunately, but um, so that they can go to work. Right. And so that's the logistical component that 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 we still have to figure out because um, a lot of the alternative education options are, you know, require parents to have a bit of a more flexible schedule and in order to get more involved. But um, in an ideal world, parents would be able to pick and choose from sort of like a menu of options. Right. And. Um, whatever works for their family. Like I, um, I, I, there are many things that I like from Montessori approaches and more like Reggio Emilia or democratic schools or innovative approaches. But, but I don't think that any particular approach or philosophy is 100% right. Why? Because again, we're all different. So it's a, it's about finding the right match for your kid. And two things we need to keep in mind. One, it may be very different from one kid to the other. And the other thing is that it may change over time. Something that used to work doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to keep working. Why? Because kids keep changing as they're growing, right? And so I think that we need to be a little bit more flexible with the way we think about education and sort of break this notion that learning happens in school. Um, I don't don't think that's true at all. In fact, I think that the opposite is true. Learning, like genuine, long-lasting learning happens outside of school when kids are you know, having the free time to explore and, and, and get curious about the things that they like and learn about the things that they like and direct their own learning and not being, you know, scared that they're being judged by an adult or that they're doing something for a grade. When we remove this sort of like extrinsic elements, I feel like that's when genuine learning happens. And so for starters, we need to remove it from that institution and make it more flexible. And so nowadays you have a variety of options. You have, you know, four schools that, you know, and we can talk about this because I know that you're all in the fitness world, but this whole idea of, you know, if you look at what kids need in order to develop as healthy individuals, they need so much movement from the time that they wake up to the time that they go to bed. Not 15-minute recess, an hour of PE a day, and maybe an after school. No, no. They need to be moving most of their days. And we know this in order for them to develop their vestibulars, like everything. Like they just they, they need that. They have so much energy that they need to release. And we've put them in these settings that go 
totally against everything we know about kids, right? They have to be sitting up. They cannot move. They need to be, you know, doing that for hours. And then you see kids that start like fidgeting and moving. And we're like, no, no bouncing, no fidgeting, no moving. And we make them feel like these behaviors are unacceptable when in reality, it's just a sign that they're not getting enough movement, that they're not able to release all this energy that they have to. And then what do we do? We're like, oh, this kid has ADHD. Let's medicate them. And it's become like a really messed up um, way to, to, to sort of, um, and parents believe it, right? And doctors prescribe these things. And then teachers are like, yeah, absolutely. And in reality, it's all fabricated, right? And it's a very controversial standpoint here because I know there are a lot of parents that are like, well, you know, there may be exceptions, but I'm, I really truly believe that this is an example of the kind of things that the system has created, like this kind of disabilities and labels and that are not necessarily true. It's just that we've put kids in an abnormal environment. And so going back to your question about, you know, what do, I would have kids be moving around a lot. So I, I was talking about forest schools and beach schools where kids are with other kids outside in nature, running around, you know, learning about the things that they encounter. Um, then, you know, I'm very optimistic about technology and where we're heading with that. Not because I think kids should be sitting in front of a computer for eight hours a day. Absolutely not. Just because I feel like when done right, we can actually condense the actual learning of the hardcore academics into an hour or two a day so that kids can have the rest of the day to be kids, to play around, to explore, to be, you know, to do whatever it is that they want to do as kids, right? To sort of restore their childhood, to enroll in project-based learning, to go to sports, to, you know, be part of the community. And so, again, this is a very ideal and optimistic scenario. And I think that we are able to get there as long as we continue to um, build different things in the alternative education space that allows different families to drop their kids off, you know, centers where the kids can be learning at their own pace and doing their own thing, but not necessarily stuck in these buildings where a lot of the things that we're doing, I think, is wasted time. Yeah. Uh, I would also throw in there, it's like, you said that uh, kids need movement in the very first uh, part of the day. I would say like adults are just children and adult bodies. And, uh, <laughs> and most times adults just go from like they're, you know, sleeping in their bed to driving in a car to sitting in their office to coming back home, sitting, watching Netflix, sitting at the dinner Insane. table and then going to bed again. Um, it's, it's unfortunate to see, but, but I mean, like, I, I think they did a study on this one too, is from the book spark where, um, kids who started their day with physical activity, they, they turned into one of the smartest schools in the nation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I'll probably, I'll put that in the show notes yeah, somewhere. Spark. Can't really, can't really figure out where that is. But, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that uh, I, I mean, this is a two part question right mm-hmm. here. So for yourself, uh, is your is your child like three years old? Two no, years old ten months. Right now, ten or? months. Ten months. Yeah. Is 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 your child already walking? It, I think yes. I saw a, a yes. Since oh my he was, gosh, since like he was nine months. Ten months. Pretty, yeah, pretty pretty crazy. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, that's that's amazing. Um. So, so let's just say for your child in your situation, uh, what is going to be your approach for schooling when? Actually, I would say it's like when you decide to bring them to school or what kind of schooling. And then let's just say for someone who doesn't necessarily have the freedom mm-hmm. to, to let's just say, homeschool their child mm-hmm. or, or do these certain things, what would be something that you would recommend to them? So there's like two-part question yeah. for you. Yeah, totally. So um, it's interesting. I get this question a lot, and I think that parents want for me to give them like a very concrete answer. And again, yeah. um, I, I'm very, you know, I think – my child is very young and I'm actually not worried about any kind of structured um, kind of direct instruction until he's about seven or eight. Why? Because I've done a lot of research and until they're at that age, what they should be doing is exploring, playing around, being kids, you know, again, 
they are at the stage where they learn the best they'll ever learn, right? Because they're doing it naturally, because it's natural instinct, because they're very good at it. Nobody sort of, they still don't have society's pressures. And this whole notion of, um, you know, you see kids and they're constantly asking, my kid doesn't talk yet, but I've worked with a lot of kids and they're like asking why and why and why and why. That's them trying to deconstruct the world around them, right? That's them trying to think for themselves. That's them trying to understand where things come from. And so um, when they, they're very good at this. So it's sort of like just those first years um, guiding them and being that, you know, facilitator on the things that they're already curious about, help them learn more about that. And it can be very unstructured, right? Let them set the pace and you provide the resources. And what you'll notice is that you are feeding their curiosity and their desire to continue to learn. And I feel like that's one of the most powerful things that we as parents can do and the age to do it. And of course, there's always time to go back and unlearn. And we, But the, the, the easiest or the best moment to do this is in those first six to seven years, I would say up to like even eight. And so if you look at countries like Finland, kids don't start school until they're seven. Um, and, and parents in the U.S. hear that and they're like, oh, my God, like, I bet they're so behind by the time they're seven when you compare them with the kid in the U.S. And it's like, actually, no, when, you know, when they start formal schooling, which, by the way, is a lot more flexible than in the U.S. and, and less hours and less homework. And they really believe that less is more. Um, and I commend them for that. And I don't think it's a perfect system, but I do think that they're doing things well in many different aspects. And so what you see is that these kids are more curious, more motivated. They're happier. Um, they, you know, they, they're, they're even developed their bodies because they've been moving so much for seven years, right? They haven't been stuck into these places. The classrooms actually don't even have chairs. Many classrooms are just like the kids are running around and they're moving, they're sitting on the floor like they should be, right? And so anyway, um, what I'm trying to say is that for those first seven years, I'm not really worried. I think that if you um, provide them with, again, this, the right space, the tools, the resources, um, and the sort of uh, motivation I'm, I'm not worried. He's going to pick up. And, and what, one of the things that I do encourage you to do is read a lot to them um, from the moment that they're very, very little, because that's how you um, expose them. Well, it, it, well, to literacy, obviously, but they start to realize that they can learn so many different things on their own. If they learn how to read and they develop that love for reading. And I think it's, again, one of the best skills that you can develop. And I think that the way we do it in formal schooling, it's a shame. And I would see this over and over again. Many kids were not ready to read by seven, despite this common misconception that and pressure that we hear like, oh, by first grade, you know, kids need to, you know, need to be able to learn how to read. There's no data that supports this. This is completely made up. And we've come to believe that this is the way it is. And we've set it in stone. And what, what, it, what it has done, and I know I'm deviating a little bit, but I think it's important. It's created this pressure for kids, for parents, for teachers, that their kids need to perform a certain way by, you know, by certain ages. When in reality, the, what the research shows is that we all mature at different rates and different, you know, like pace. And some kids are ready to read very young, like at three years old, and some are ready to read like a 10, 11, 12. And that's okay. As long as you introduce them to reading when they're ready, then they'll pick up on it because that's that's how we are. And they'll continue to read for pleasure. When you force something early because, you know, that's sort of like what we've decided that by seven and they're not ready, you end up with kids that don't want to read for pleasure anymore. And that's, I think it's a, it's a big shame. So I would read a lot to them. I would, again, provide them the resources, the environment to explore their curiosities. I would get them out and let them explore a variety of different sports and different instruments. And because I feel like those first years are at the moment to develop range, which is a concept I talk about in my book that I first learned from David Epstein in his book, Range. 
which is this idea that you expose them to a variety of different things just so that they get a taste of everything. Because if you look at the most um, successful and accomplished people and, you know, Nobel Prize winners and, and, you know, the people that do really well in sports, and, and, and you probably know a lot about this, they come from a generalist background, right? They've played different things and they've done different things. And then eventually they found, you know, what, they're, what they want to hone into. And then that's their specialized knowledge and they hone into that. But they come from sort of like a generalist background. So I think that that's very important. And those first six to seven to eight years are crucial for that. Um, and so, and so, yeah, and I would encourage them to question everything. And, and so it's very informal, as you can see, um, I would like to maybe enroll him in a Montessori school, um, for a few days a week, just so that he's around other kids. And I love their approach of, you know, letting kids really direct and conduct their own learning. And so when he gets old enough, um, I'm really optimistic on the digital tutors that are coming out. So I, I'm part of this startup called Synthesis, and I really love the one that we that we're working on. It's still early stages, but I feel like we've been able to capture that human element that we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation that I think is so important that you feel that there's a caring adult on the other side or human that wants for you to learn and that believes in you. And the way that, you know, we've been able to capture sort of this human into this AI machine, which is crazy. And I never thought it would have been possible um, to the point where you feel like you're learning from Dr. Tanton, who's our first, you know, math teacher that we're using for this. We're, we're starting with math. And so what we've seen is that kids are able to really grasp the concepts and learn and they're motivated and they feel like they're learning from a human and you're able to condense the learning in an hour a day, like we were talking about earlier. Um, and in a way that, um, that then opens up the rest of the day to engage on, I would probably enroll him in project-based learning schools, because I feel like um, I, I love this idea of giving them a problem or giving them a project. And then as they're trying to solve that, they're going to need different topics, different tools and different things. And that's the moment you introduce that. Why? Because they see the relevance of what they're about to learn. One of the big problems with schools that we have all this, you know, the knowledge is condensed in subjects, right? And every 45 minutes, we ring a bell and we have to close science, open math. 45 minutes, ring a bell, close math. Open. That's not the way we learn right? Like we're interrupting learning. Sometimes kids haven't even, you know, gotten excited about it and they already have to close it. Or sometimes they are into it, super into it. And we're like, nope, nope, you have to close it. You need to tune out and you need to now be interested in this. That's not how it works, right? Learning is interconnected, right? You need to see how math fits with science and fits with literacy and fits with, you know, with, with different things in order for you to make a, a, a big picture of it, right? And then on top of that, learning decays really quickly. So if kids don't put to practice in the real world, not like complete a worksheet or pass a test, like in the real world, what they're learning in the next 14 days, it decays and they forget about it. And so what I love about this project-based learning or problem-based learning is that they immediately see the need and the use of the things that we're teaching them and they're interested in it. So you don't have to like convince them to learn or force them to learn about something. So I love that approach. Um, and, and yeah, when they're curious about something and kids are curious about everything, like, you know, they, they want to buy something. Well, that's the moment, that's the moment where you introduce them about, you know, money or they're interested in Star Wars and, 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 you know, like space and this and that, Well, you teach them about space travel, they love dinosaurs and they're so curious about it. Well, then maybe they'll be interested about learning about centuries and millennial and, you know, like sort of going from where they are at. And this is something that's really hard to do when you're, when and you put them into a, a traditional school, right? And so, as you see, I don't have a clear-cut answer, but that's sort of where I'm going, mm -hmm. like very informal at the beginning and then using AI and technology to cover the hardcore academics and then having the rest of the day to enroll in the things that that that, that I think are important, like project-based learning and being around other kids and sports and 
and sort of make it more holistic. Now, this may change if we have this conversation in a few years, depending on what's happening, you know, what's emerging. I'm sure there are going to be more alternatives. So, but this is where I'm right now. If my kid were a little bit older, like that's what I would do right now. It, it reminds me of the, the saying, which is like, you can't connect the dot, or you can't see the big picture until you connect the dots and zoom out. And what is coming out to me is a sense of just chasing curiosity from one point to another. Mm -hmm. And you're never going to know where that's going to end up. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and also one of the things that uh, I've been researching is like the idea of like being a specialist versus a generalist, especially in the early stages. And uh, a lot of parents, you know, like a lot of us are guilty of just being like, well, this person is going to be like the next Michael Jordan and we're just going to put him in like, you know, basketball camps and just like have him do basketball 24 mm -hmm. seven. When the reality is, is that when I kind of like look at learning and, and uh, education, it's the generalist who's able to do so many things and then relate back when they choose to do something, they relate back the things that they've learned from all these like wide ranges of things that they've tried into the thing that they choose to specialize in. And that's what makes them even more of a genius. Yes. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it, to me, it's like, you know, I was like so focused on, you know, becoming a lawyer <laughs> at, at one point because the teacher told me that I should right. be a lawyer. <laughs> and, and then I did everything to kind of like lead myself towards that. But at the same time, I found that, uh, you know, I, I went into doing you know, I went to like lawyer class and I was like, I don't really like this. And then I kind of like did a, a kind of like just like a little introspection. I was like, what what do I like? And then it led me into physical education. I thought I wanted to be a gym teacher. Then it led me to uh, becoming like a personal trainer because I wanted to train or I wanted to coach people and uh, transform their bodies. So I love I love that approach. And I and I get like the whole there's not one size fits all. And we all want this answer to be like in this little box, mm -hmm. you know, that we can kind of like label and, and, and kind of put away. But but I get it. You know, uh, it, one of the things I, I did want to kind of like touch upon, because because I heard you talk about this earlier. This is something that myself and my wife have been really broaching the idea about, which is the idea of homeschooling. And I and I understand that there is different types of homeschooling mm -hmm. and there are also hybrid types of mm -hmm. homeschooling as well this is a selfish question to be honest because i'm asking for for my family but yeah. but what what is actually like the concept of homeschooling mm -hmm. in your mind um and also if you can kind of like go into the different types and, and also like the things that you see working and the things that you don't necessarily see working mm -hmm. with homeschooling. Yeah. So it's interesting because before I explored this whole world, I thought that the options were traditional schooling or homeschooling. And it turns out that there's a spectrum, right? To the very, very far mm -hmm. left, you have the very traditional schools, which by the way, caveat here, when you hear me talking throughout this conversation about schools and what schools and the system and this, I'm talking about like very traditional schools, which happen to be most, but I am very aware that there are many schools doing things differently. There are alternative schools that have that are more progressive. And, and so I'm talking about like the very traditional ones. So that's all the way to the left. And then all the way to the right is actually not homeschooling. It's unschooling, which is sort of mm. like the absolute extreme of it where, um, you know, parents make the decision that kids get to sort of direct and manage 100 percent everything that they do. And so um, I, I, 
there are things that, again, that I, that I like about that approach. I love the autonomy that they have and this and that. However, that's something that wouldn't work for me and my family specifically, because I believe that there is a very important role for the adult. I don't think it's the set in the stage. Absolutely not. But I do think that we are facilitators and guides and more than anything, mentors, right? And that kids do need that adult figure to try to help them navigate this world, right? And so, um, so that's sort of like the two extremes that I've sort of determined in the spectrum. But then um, a little bit more to this side, you know, you have then world schooling, which is parents that decide to do not what I did necessarily, because I did go to schools in all these countries, but there's some families that just decide to travel the world and kids are learning from the traveling, right? So there's not a structured curriculum. They're just learning from the trips that they're making in the world and this and that. And so it is a full-time thing, right? As you can imagine. But then you have like homeschooling and homeschooling can look many, many, many different ways. You have homeschooling that's actually really structured and really traditional to the point where it's basically what you would do in a traditional classroom, but you're doing it at home. So the parents decide to be the teachers and they follow a very strict curriculum and they have tests and they have like all these things. So that's one type of way to do it. Then um, you have the, the ones that are a bit more flexible that you kind of like pick and choose from different curriculums. You go by sort of the kid's interest. And I really like that approach. But I even like it more when it becomes like a pod or a learning pod or a micro school. Why? Because kids are surrounded by other kids. And it's like six to eight kids. You can have a little bit more. But basically, it's learning through projects that are, again, depending on the kid's interest. And, and it may vary a lot from, from place to place, depending on the demographic and sort of the language that they're speaking. But um, I love that it's like a few hours a day where kids are with other kids and an adult. It could be the parent or it could be a teacher that they bring in. But they're really, again, learning from projects. And I love that approach. And I feel like if I, you know, I haven't decided if I want to do 100% homeschooling yet. Like I, I, I don't here's the other part of it. I feel like um, sometimes it can be tricky when your parent is your full-time educator. Um, I feel like, yeah, like it can, it can create sort of um, like, like a tension. Um, it can, mm -hmm. it can work for some families. I feel like, for example, in my case, um, I would prefer for my kid to have another kind of mentor that he looks up to. That's not mom and dad. I see the benefits to that. And so um, I think that that's another way to do it. Um, and then you have sort of um, this, um, other, other kind of homeschooling that relay a lot on online learning. And so you see this a lot in, for example, um, parents that are like in professional sports and things like this, that they have to like travel and move around a lot because I don't know, they're baseball players or this and that. And so their families kind of like engage in online learning and it's homeschooling, but it's really, you know, done online. And so that also has different um, roots, right? Like it, it can be very traditional. You can follow something like to the dot. A lot of parents like want that structure because it, it makes it maybe easier and manageable. I would be careful with that because maybe you're like, you know, swinging the pendulum too far and, and you end up putting kids into a box again. So might as well send them to traditional school, at least they're with other kids. And so, but then also you have the flexibility of doing that of like a few hours a day and then the kids have the rest of the day to engage in other things. And so again, it's interesting because there's not a one place where you, you know, for parents that decide to homeschool, there's not like a place that you can go and like all this is laid out for you. Um, it, you kind of have to do your research and then it's super important to connect with other parents in your community and see who else is doing this so that you're not navigating this world on your own and you're not reinventing the wheel. A lot of these things have, you know, so I would recommend, for example, to become part of and, and now with the online world, it's a lot easier to do this. You can find sort of a community of parents that are homeschooling that sort of like, um, you know, relates to what you feel is best for your family out of sort of like these options that I've laid out. Um, and, and, and yeah, so I think that and then I, I really see the benefit of in addition to having your kids interact with other kids in the community. Um, 
having kids interact with a group of like an online community, I think is so powerful. And I've seen it firsthand at Synthesis, right? We have this like team simulation where kids are solving really complex real world problems through these games um, that are very competitive and, and they have to work in collaboration, but they're working with kids from all over the world, different ages. And it's fascinating to see them because a lot of what happens when you have them in this like physical schools is that they're very conventionally minded, right? Because they're, they're only kind of like stuck with people that are, look like them, that act like them, not always, but most of the time, right? And people their age. And when you think about it, when in the real world do you only interact with people your age? I feel like that's really limiting them. And so suddenly in this online communities, what you see is like they're older kids, they're younger kids, they're people that, you know, kids that come from different backgrounds that approach problems differently, that will be sort of like define the way that you think about things. And so I feel like that's when you really start to raise independent thinkers. And sometimes they connect with kids from other places that they have in common interests, right? That otherwise they wouldn't have found. And I, I experienced this myself as well as an adult when I joined David's course and sort of like opened this world. Like, you know, I'm able to talk to you today and learn from you and, and I followed your work because I found you in this online world, right? And so I also think that there's a place for that. Um, and, 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 and yeah, so that's sort of like where I am when it comes to like homeschooling. Yeah, that's, uh, I love your answers, uh, <laughs> more so because like, it's, it's not like, it's not necessarily catered towards the soundbite. It is really what a true teacher and a coach would say, um, which is the idea that there, there are so many roads to Valhalla. There are so many ways to do things and it is not some like one size fits all solution for everybody. Um, there are pros and cons to like each and everything that you choose to do. And, and, and for us, it's like researching, getting the information out. One of the things that you did mention before was kind of like having this one-on-one -on -one type of mentorship with another teacher. And, and you did talk about the pods and that's actually something that my fam my wife and I were looking at as well, but what makes the, the one-on-one, -on -one, uh, more significant in terms of like the kid, uh, being able to learn? Yeah, so this is a really interesting question. So actually, um, education used to be 200 years ago, the job of parents and churches and one-on-one -on -one tutors. So if you see how like Alexander the Great learned, right, like his tutor was Aristotle's. And so we've known for a long time that the best way to learn is from that one-on-one -on -one tutor. Um, I think that, you know, there are many reasons, but one of the biggest ones is because this person can stay with you until you grasp the content, right? And so if you're stuck here, then this person can help you. The student can really help you like navigate that. And so, and the best ones won't give you the answers. They will ask the right kind of questions and pose the right kind of questions to lead you to the answers yourself. And so um, the whole like holy grail of education technology is trying to figure out how do we do that? How do we provide kids with their own one-on-one -on -one tutors, right? One of my biggest frustrations as a teacher was that I had 30 students and, you know, I would get students from previous grades with a lot of gaps in their knowledge, right? Um, and I couldn't really stop my class for every student and sit down with them like I would have wanted to until they caught up or until they really understood. Sometimes it would take longer. And so, and I couldn't do that, right? Like I had to cover a lot of curriculum. They, I had students that were more advanced and so I couldn't stop the class for them. That's not fair for them either. And so it was very frustrating. And I was like, we're never going to solve. I, I don't know how we're going to solve this problem. Like it just seems like, you know, um, but then when I started to notice with this, um, AI tutors that are coming out now, what's happening is that kids now have like a, a teacher that's infinitely patient, that can stay with you until you grasp the content, right? That won't move on until you're ready. And I feel like that's really 
personalized learning, right? You hear a lot like, oh, we have this apps and this things that we're adding to the classroom and it's personalized and this and that. That's not really personalized, right? Like it just kind of like picks up on where you are. It gives you more problems. You pass to the next level, but it doesn't, it's not like, I feel like personalized education is when you have that one-on-one tutor. Now, I think that that's a little bit different from the mentorship component, although you, you may find it, you know, you may have your, your tutor to be your mentor, but For example, at Synthesis, the way that we're thinking about it and we're trying to incorporate this, we haven't figured out exactly how we're going to do it, but kids are going through the simulations and they're learning all these soft skills that are crucial for any kind of job or anything that they want to do in the future that we would argue that kids are not learning in school. Like, for example, how to handle failure, like, you know, like the the right kind of attitude and how to learn from from mistakes when you make them. Like in school, you kind of learn to not look at that again because you get that bad grade and you get scared and you don't, you know, we learn to be risk averse, right? And it's, it's a negative thing. But in reality, failure is something that kids need a lot of practice when the stakes are low, when they're kids, right? So that they learn how to navigate that. So when failure comes their way, when they're adults, it's not catastrophic failure because they already know how to navigate that and how, you know, they've experienced that. They need a lot of practice with that. We don't give them practice with that in school, right? We kind of like punish them for that. And so that's an example of one skill. Then this whole notion of figuring things out and making decisions and understanding trade-offs and what to do under pressure and then shouldering the consequences of your choices, like all these kinds of things. We do it at Synthesis through the games, but then we realized we're missing the reflection component. Like, yes, kids are learning mental mm. models and they're learning about this, and this, but if they don't stop and then look at and we record the kids and we have little videos where they can see, but if they don't have somebody that sits with them and sort of like goes back and, and prompts questions and helps them reflect, the reflection component is crucial as part of the learning process, then sort of those skills don't really stick. So it's kind of like the same problem that we have in school, right? Where it just kind of like goes in one ear. So we've realized that when you have a mentor and it has to be someone that your child admires. It, it, and so it's not someone that, you know, you pick and, and it's like, this is your teacher. That's why many tutors don't work nowadays because your kids are like, oh, I don't even, it has to be someone that your child admires, um, looks up to, and that really believes in your kid and wants to help them improve. And then really their role is to help them reflect on the things that they're learning. You know, and, and, and I feel like that's sort of what the, the next step at Synthesis is what we're trying to incorporate. And that's different from the digital tutor. And, and so, yeah, so there's a power to that. But then also what's interesting is that this mentor or this tutor doesn't necessarily have to be an adult. It could also be an older kid that that is a little bit wiser and that um, your, your kid admires, right? We've seen that that works really well. The way that kids interact within each other is very different than the way that they interact with adults. And so that's sort of um, what we're trying to do with the tutor and what the role of the mentor, I think, plays in a child's education. Yeah, I think that's uh, incredibly, that's incredible. It, it does remind me of, this might seem totally unrelated, but but I don't think it is, which is a sense of like, for um, for about like one year since like September 11th, 2022, uh, I had gotten rid of uh, drinking from my life. Now, some people would just do that and just get rid of the habit and just be like, oh, I'm just going to like do something else and just like distract myself with something else. One of my key tenets is to add a component of introspection and reflection to the thing that you're actually trying to do, which enhances the learning, and also the integration of the information that you've learned. You can't like let that stuff kind of you know stay up here in the brain. Uh, you, you actually need to introspect and reflect. And then that is how we learn these lessons. That's how we not even just like learn these lessons. That's how we like live these lessons when we start to reflect back to ourselves. So, so when you are getting, let's just say these like one-on-one tutors or AI, AI, AI 
I was going to call them AI guys, but I don't think they're AI guys. But, <laughs> but, but, or you could say like older students, like what are some kind of questions you, you ask them to reflect back on the thing that they just learned? Yeah, so I, I, I love this. And I'm going to actually give you an example based on a question that you asked me previously about um, how you engage kids in many different things um, from a young age and sort of so that they develop range and then specialized knowledge. A question that I get a lot, and I promise I'm going to tie it to your question from parents is like, okay, but when, how do I know, you know, sometimes, you know, my kid tries something and then they, they, they want to like let it go really quickly. And then like when, but I want for them to persevere and keep going. Um, but then how do I make them try these things? How, how do I know when to quit and this and that? And so I, I, I have a whole chapter about this in my book and I, that I feel is fascinated. And, and I saw what happened when I changed this perception in my classroom. We often talk about the importance of perseverance and we rarely talk about the importance of quitting, right? So perseverance is super important, you know, working hard so we're something and not giving up. However, if you're persevering in the wrong direction, sometimes you're better off quitting, right? And so we never talk about this. We're like, oh, quitters are losers and we have this whole negative connotations and kids. Um, what, we, what I've noticed is that they are scared to try new things because they fear that they have to commit to them if they don't like them. And so I'll give you a simple example. And again, I'm going to tie it to the questions and the reflection component. In my classroom, I would notice that my kids would rarely stick to books. And so they were like, you know, because there's this notion and we learn in school that, you know, you start a book, you have to finish the book. You start a book, like that's just how it is. The reality is that, um, Sometimes it's not interesting, or sometimes you get the point of the book halfway through, or sometimes you realize it's very repetitive, or sometimes it's really just, you know, your interest changed and you no longer want to read about this. And so it's really silly that we're forcing them to stick to something that, you know, maybe it's not longer, it's, it's not no longer relevant. So I was like, okay, how do I teach them to let go of these books, but at the same time have some sort of principles to it, right? And so we came up with a list of reasons why they would abandon books. And we were very thoughtful about this and we wrote them down and they all participated. And so, you know, and again, it was things like, you know, I, I, I kind of already got the gist of it, or it's very, it reminds me of another book that I've already read. And so it's kind of repetitive or, you know, it just, it's a little bit, you know, over my head that happens sometimes too, or my interests change or whatever. And so they came up with these reasons. And so they would have to let me know whenever they were going to abandon a book. And after doing this for like a month, what I noticed was that my kids would stick to this book's for, you know, and until they finished them. And for the first time I had kids that were finishing books and they felt so proud of themselves. And so it led them to stick to things for longer because they knew that if they tried something, they did not necessarily have to commit, right? They could quit and find something that suited better their, their interests. And so I think it's very similar for other things, but there has to be sort of that reflection component and those questions that we can ask them that are very similar to the kind of questions that the tutors can ask or the mentors can ask the kids. So for example, let's say that your kid is trying and I'm going to use sports as an example, but it applies to anything. They're trying soccer. And after, you know, one session, they're like, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to quit. Well, you can ask them things like, okay, um, what felt really good about today's practice? And, you know, you, you kind of help them find like one good thing. Okay, what was really challenging? They'll tell you the things that were challenging. What do you think you would need to do in order for, um, in order to get better at this? Like in order for that challenging thing to become easier? What do you think that, you know, people that become really good at this sports have done? Like, do you think that they quit after the first session? Do you think that they keep coming back? And so it's kind of like this questions that make them sort of reflect on um, the, without telling them like, don't quit, you know, keep coming. You're just prompting questions that get them 
to to sort of reflect and get to the answer on their own. And I think this is also true for for teaching, for the way that we give feedback. You know, we're often so inclined to sort of like tell them the answers, but but if you ask them sort of like questions, okay, so kind of show me what you did there. Like what walk me through your thinking. Okay, is there do you think that there's another way to do that? Or what would have happened if you had tried this? Or, you know, like these kind of questions that's just like again, walking around their thinking and letting them tell you the answers, I think is super powerful. And I think it also applies to, for example, I talk a lot about video games because I feel like there's there's mm. there's things that we can learn about video games that are not necessarily implicitly stated, um, but you learn through them through reflection, right? And there are a lot of skills that you learn through video games that are really valuable in the real world if you know you're able to reflect on these things. And so I always encourage parents to get interested in your kids gaming, right? And, and and not make it only negative and like, no, just like sit down with them and be like, tell me about the things that you're learning. Oh my God, how did you achieve that level? How could, you know, I see that you, you, you gained this skill. Do you think this is applicable to the real world? Like how could you use this in the real world? You're, and, and by doing this, you're helping them connect the things that they're learning and things that are not obvious to things that they can use in their day-to-day life. And again, this applies to subjects, this applies to sports, this applies to video games. Um, and I and I think it's, you know, it's very useful. And it also applies, you know, I'm I'm fascinated by this whole idea of questions. Again, my, my whole work is grounded on this. Um, and I think that if more people asked questions, then I think we can steer things in a new direction, right? When we question things, we innovate. When we don't, we get st- stuck with the status quo. And so something that I encourage parents to do a lot is, is encourage this at home, no, because we know that they're not really doing it in school, right? And so this whole habit of questioning things, again, it comes naturally, we squash it, but we can help them get back to it, right? And for that, we need to model that and we need to um, question things with them and, and teach them how to do this again, right? And, and make them feel like it's appropriate. And so I talk a lot about in my book, like one of the ways to raise independent thinkers, and this is something that a mentor could do, a tutor could do, a parent can do, um, is teach them that they need to question everything and that it's okay to be skeptics and to be, you know, not believe everything that they hear, right? And a great way to do this um, is sort of teaching them how to detect their own biases and other people's biases. And you can have like a myth-busting discussion at dinner, right? And this is super fun when you have your kids and you're like, okay, so today you're going to pick a topic that you don't necessarily agree with. So let's say that one of your kids you know, believes in aliens and the other one's like, yeah, no way. You have them switch and you have them, you know, the one that believes in aliens, they need to make an argument why aliens don't exist. And then, you know, the other one that 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 does the other way. And so they start to realize that there are two sides to things and two stories to things and that you can have arguments for both sides and that there's not necessarily like one truth, but rather different perspectives. And, and that helps them get to the truth. And I know that I'm kind of going all over the place here, but the common factor here is the questions, right? The questions that we ask them, that they learn to ask themselves, like it's fostering this attitude of questioning things. Um, And I think that that's sort of like where this whole independent thinking comes from. Yeah, and you're turning them into great debaters as well as a result of doing that with uh, with (laughs) getting them to steal a man without without them even thinking about it. Right, right. Uh, Okay, Uh, and okay, so... In regards to your book, The Learning Game, what exactly was your intention when you started to uh, take on a project like this? Yeah, so I realized that, um, for example, with that tweet that you mentioned earlier that went viral, the reason why it went viral is because it's something that's really obvious and that we all really deep inside know 
But because we just kind of blindly go through the motions and never stop to think about it, we just keep going and we never question it, right? So I realized that if I brought to surface a lot of these things that everyone can relate to, because regardless of your background, like we all went to some form of schooling, right? We all learn some way, right? We are we were kids or we are parents or we're aspiring parents, so we can all relate to this topic, right? And it's relevant to everyone. Um, but it's just maybe, you know, not enough people are, are, are stopping and asking these kinds of questions. And I think that um, if more parents stop and reflect on their own learning experience, they'll start to realize that a lot of the things that they're doing is just because they're following the motions, but they don't make sense anymore. And there are better ways to do it. And it starts at home. And it starts with simple, you know, I, I realize you asked me a question a two-part question earlier that I did not get to the second part, which was what happens with parents that can't pull their kids out of school, um, but they realize that, you know, it's not serving them. Like, what can they do? And I think it's as simple as reflecting on on these things and asking the right questions. And my book helps with that. You know, it, it helps you pose a bunch of different questions because the moment that you realize you can start to give importance to the things that really matter for you and your family, and then you can kind of help your kids let go of the things that are not that important or actually detrimental that the school is teaching them. And so I, I think that if you can't pull them out of school, just the fact that you are, you know, maybe not emphasizing grades as much because you know that your kid actually does know this content, but they're not good test takers. Or you know that your kid is, you know, exceptional at music and music is not an academic subject that that's being you know sort of like um rewarded in in their school environment and so he or she doesn't feel smart and they don't feel competent because that's not their area of expertise but they're excellent at this and so you foster that at home and you give that a lot of importance and you you don't let their self-esteem sort of like squash because you're valuing that and i think that again it sounds like simple but it's it, it really it really can make a difference and so this whole notion of like teaching them how to question things. It's, it's so important because that's how they are going to continue learning on their own. That's when they're not going to believe everything that the doctor said or that, you know, like you're probably going to be alarmed by this or you probably already know, but like, it's incredible that we're still, you know, teaching the food pyramid. It's like, <laughs> what? Like, how are we like this? Like, how are we still teaching this? And kids are like blindly trusting it because it's in the textbook. And then, you know, half of the American population is obese. And it's like, well, yeah. it, I think that it, you, you, as a parent, you can't delegate your kid's education to school. Even if you send them to school, you need to take, and I talk about this in my book as having skin in the game. You are the one responsible. And this doesn't mean you need to teach your kid every subject or you have to be their teacher. Or you have to homeschool. This just means that you are the one that is, um, you know, deciding at home, like, what are the things that we as a family value? What are the things, you know, what is my kid really good at? What are the things that, you know, like all this comes from home? Like, how do I teach them the, the you know, how to question things? And this comes from home. And the teacher, and I always say this, like the best teacher a kid will ever have is, is a parent, right? And you have those 18 years or so to really make a difference in their lives. And then they're going to be out in the wild on their own. And, you know, um, I guess this ties to, also this topic, like, and, and it's very hard and I'm a parent and I know, but this whole idea, like we, we want for our kids to be happy. We don't want for them to be sad. And so we don't want them to get hurt and we don't want them to experience failure and this and that. But the moment that we realize that if we want for them to be happy adults, we need to expose them from an early age in an appropriate manner to failure, to sadness, to, you know, people that are not as nice, to, you know, challenges, to all these things, because that's how you make them stronger adults. That's how you build anti-fragile kids, right? Um, it's just like germs. The 
plaster or that you expose kids to germs are going to build their immune systems and they're going to have stronger immune systems. It's the same. And so this is, again, something that they're not really learning in school. In school, we're very much focused on the academics and the content and this and that that may or may not be relevant. This happens at home. And so um, I think that all these little things in combination are things that any parent can do. And, 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 and again, you don't have to be like a full-time parent homeschooling in order to value the things that really matter to your family and that are preparing them for the real world. Yeah. And uh, something that comes out in how you talk, the, the energy in which you're conveying is intentionality. It's being intentional with the education, being intentional with, your, with uh, how you're guiding your child as well. And uh, that's just something that I just respect about you. And I just wanted to like point that out. So um, if you are listening to this, uh, the book is The Learning Game. I really feel like adults would actually benefit from reading this book as much as they would be reading it for their children. They would, you would actually benefit from reading this book because it would help you unlearn uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the things that we have been conditioned to learn uh, through traditional schooling. Um, and and I just want to say thanks so much for coming on to this podcast. Uh, I appreciate you. I appreciate uh, the education that you're bringing into the world and and also the innovative ideas uh, that you are currently working on right now. So I just want to say thank you for that. So uh, if people wanted to, um, you know, learn more about you, people want to access the book, uh, where would you point them to? Thank you, Dan. Well, first, thank you for having me. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I love talking to people that I admire from different fields. Um, that's how I get actually my ideas for writing and for all these things. So thank you. Um, and yeah, you can follow me on, on X, Twitter, um, at, at Anna Fabrega 11. Um, you can follow me on Instagram, MissFab underscore Learning Lab. Um, I have a YouTube channel where I haven't been posting as much and a newsletter, Fat Fridays, that I send on Fridays that's also paused with this whole book stuff. And you can find the book, um, which covers a lot of the things that we talked about today, and it's not prescriptive. Um, you know, you, you won't feel like you're doing things a certain way or you have to switch. No, it's just an invitation to rethink education for yourself and find, you know, the learning game for your kids that prepare them for the game of life, right? And you can find it online anywhere um, or in the nearest bookstore next to you. Awesome. Get the book. And uh, and Anna, we got to get you back on the newsletters and YouTube. Yes, you, you're yes. doing such a great job on it. <laughs> got to get you back on yes, it. Yes, yes. Uh, and yes, thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dan. I appreciate the space. Thank you again for listening to The Dango Show. We have some amazing episodes coming your way, so make sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. If you're already subscribed and today's episode hit home for you, please share this episode with someone that you know who'd benefit from listening. Take care and see you every week on your favorite podcasting app.